Thanks, Rita. And uh, thanks, Simeon, for that prayer. It's quite uh, covered a lot of what I'm going to say. Maybe helpful to have the Bibles open. We can be looking at, in particular, at Isaiah chapter nine, verses one to seven. But we'll get there in a few minutes' time. Before we dive in, let's uh, just bow our heads in prayer. Now, Father God, we thank you for our dreams, for our visions, for the great visions of Isaiah, for your promises to us in your word. We just pray as, uh, as Christmas approaches that you may refresh your vision in our hearts once more, that you would uh, fill us with hope for your return to this earth, and that in the meantime, we may live with hope and joy that you have come in Jesus' name. Uh, we pray. Amen. We all have dreams, don't we? And I mean, like visions, dreams for the future. We have hopes and dreams for our children, for our family. And we may have aspirations or dreams for our career, our job. We may even have a dream for the kind of house we'd like to live in. Or the, we may dream of the places around the world that we'd like to visit someday. You know, we get excited about our dreams, particularly when we have hope that those dreams will be fulfilled one day. And that hope sustains us through everyday life, through the good times as well as the tough, hard, difficult times. But I wonder if you have bigger dreams, like dreams for our church, for example. Now, we've attracted a lot of people here in Oran Park and to this church. And we have a great vision for what our church would like to see our church become. I probably shouldn't have put that out, but I should ask you what that vision is. You should know it by now, don't we, Stuart? Of course we do. Together, we long to see new life in Jesus come to every home in Oran Park and the growing southwest for their salvation, the good of the community, and for the glory of God. This is a big vision. It's a big, audacious dream that we have for this community. Now, we've been talking over the past few months of what our church will look like in not just one year's time, but five years' time. And we've been considering the challenges of the kind of growth we may experience. And given the current trends, it's not unreasonable to expect that our church congregation look around you. It's not unreasonable to expect that we will double in size in the next two years. And then, if we push out a little bit further, we may double in size again within five years. That means we'll have four to 500 people meeting here in our church each Sunday in five years' time. I didn't include kids in that count. 
There could be four to 500 children as well. That's daunting, isn't it? Scary in many ways. But are you dreaming this big a dream for our church and what God is doing in our midst for our church? And it's for me, and I hope for you, it's great to be part of this vision, seeing this dream come to fruition. But I wonder if you have any dreams for our country. Do you have any hopes, or do you have hopes for how our country will develop? And I wonder if there are issues or projects that you are passionate about. And what about our country's leaders? Do they inspire you to support the growth and development of our country? And is there anyone out there who stirs you up to embrace a dream or a vision for our community or for our country as a whole? As I reflected on that thought during the week, I considered people who have inspired us, who have inspired nations to take action, to make a change, to make a difference. One person that came to mind was JFK, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who in early 1961 said these famous words, I think it was in his inauguration speech in 1961 in January. He said, ask not what your country can do for you. Rather, ask what you can do for your country. This was a vision, a dream that stirred people up at that time. And then a few months later, he was able to put flesh, or he put flesh on that vision when he made this incredible announcement, which in 1961 was pretty amazing, when he said, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. Kennedy had the ability to inspire people to achieve great, amazing things. He dreamed big and he was able to draw people into that big vision. And as we know, they achieved that incredible goal of putting a man on the moon in 1969. And then what about leaders who inspired people in darker times? I think back to, oh, it was before my time, to Winston Churchill, who uttered those famous words in World War II when Britain was facing the onslaught of Nazi Germany. Never give in. Never, never, never. Never in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in, except to convictions of honour and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the overwhelming might of the enemy. Churchill's words inspired a nation to stand firm, to stand and fight. What about Martin Luther King Jr.? who was one of the leaders of the civil rights movement in the United States in the early 1960s. He shared his dream of racial equality. 
in a speech he gave in Washington, D.C. in early 1963. It was the I Have a Dream speech. And I thought it was worth reading a fair chunk of it this morning because it is inspiring stuff. And I don't think many people have actually heard a lot of, other than those few words, of what was in that speech. But it really captures the moment. Halfway through the speech, he said, I say to you today, my friends, that in spite of the difficulties and frustrations of the moment, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise and live out the true meaning of its, true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a desert state sweltering with the heat of injustice and oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day the state of Alabama, whose governor's lips are presently dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, will be transformed into a situation where little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls and walk together as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low and rough places will be made plains and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith with which I return to the south. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with a new meaning. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. Of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when we let freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's creation, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free 
at last. It, uh, they are powerful words. Wish I could preach like that. Inspiring words. Words of hope. Words of passion. Words of inspiration. Words of a dream. A dream that was possible. But as we look at other leaders, we see, we look at other people who've inspired us, who've captured the imagination. Sometimes it's just through a, a catchy slogan or a jingle that captures people's imagination. Remember this guy? Most, many of you probably won't. Gough Whitlam. And Gough in, in 1971 inspired great change in this country with his election slogan, It's time. It's time for a change. And you might remember Barack Obama's inauguration speech and his refrain of, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can make a change to improve this country, that we can make a difference. And I really dare to mention the last one. <laughs> Let's make America great again, says Donald Trump. Now, whether you believe it or not, that slogan captured the imagination of a lot of people. So much so, well, he's now the President of the United States. Make no more comment. But what do all these people have in common? They're all able to cast a vision of the future, a future that was far better than the present. They had big dreams. National dreams, dreams that gave people a hope and, and dreams that inspired people to achieve great things for a common cause or for the co common good. You know, when we have confidence in the people who lead us and we're inspired by the future they present to us, we are motivated to remain steadfast through the dark times, to make sacrifices where necessary, to persevere through trials because we have hope inside us for a better future. Well, in a similar kind of way, God gave the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Yes, I did get back to Isaiah. And God gave Isaiah a fantastic vision of the future, a future that held out hope for people living in troubled, desperate times, a future that promised peace, justice, and wise government. You know, one of the most amazing things about God in Scripture is the fact that he is never frustrated by human sin. And he never, ever gives up his plans for our salvation. You know, when we embark on some endeavour and it's, it's frustrated in some way or hindered in some way, we often make radical changes and we change course. But not so God of the Bible. For example, after the fall in Genesis 3, when the offspring of Adam and Eve continued to reject God in all kinds of ways, God acts in judgment and sends the great flood in the time of Noah. But he continues to engage with the rebellious, sinful humanity for their salvation. And then after the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis 11, 
God seeks to establish a new covenant with Abraham. He wants to establish a covenant relationship with people who will recognise him, serve him and worship him. The prophet Isaiah, whose words are captured in our reading today. Isaiah lived about 700 years before Christ and he wrote uh, mainly from the city of Jerusalem. And in Isaiah we read of the terrible judgment coming on the people of God in the 8th century BC. Why? Because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience to God. In Isaiah, in the early chapters of Isaiah, and particularly in chapter 7 and 8, we read of the judgment that's coming upon the house of David. Poor leadership from the Davidic kings had contributed, contributed to the collapse of the nation politically, morally, and spiritually. And God was now holding them to account. You see, in that time, the kings and government officials were often corrupt And the common people experienced incredible injustice, oppression, and even brutality. And in Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, many people had turned from worshipping God and instead worshipped idols made of wood and stone. And Isaiah comes along and he prophesies that the northern kingdom of Israel will be wiped out by the Assyrian invasion and that the southern kingdom of Judah will also be decimated. And so there's this overgirding threat, overreaching threat over the entire country. People were living in the fear of being conquered, invaded, and carried off into captivity. However, in the midst of this devastating judgment that God's bringing about, we find that God does not give up on his people entirely. We read how a remnant will be saved and become the nucleus of renewed Israel. The remnant represents the truth of God's continuing presence to bless them. So if you've still got your Bibles open to Isaiah, page 687 uh, in the Ordinary Bibles and uh, page 1027 in the large print Bibles. We find in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, it makes clear that God, despite having passed judgment, will not give up on the house of of David. He will not be frustrated in his promise to bless his people through David's offspring. You see, we see that, that God has a plan, and that plan will be fulfilled by Jesus some 700 years later. 700 years, that's a long time. But in the meantime, this incredible prophecy is designed to give people hope that better times will come. Chapter 9 opens with an allusion to the dark times the people have been experiencing and how God has brought judgment on disobedient Israel. And yet through this darkness a light begins to shine. You can imagine just sort of starting to shine in, in the, on the dark horizon, this light. And this light grows, but this is no ordinary light. A new dawn is coming. And this is a great light that will drive away the darkness. And when this happens, there will be great excitement amongst the people and despair will turn 
into great joy, great celebration. And people will actually recognise that this is God's hand at work, that God is bringing this about. And they will see their nation turning a corner and things beginning to improve. And this joy, this excitement, this enthusiasm will be like the joy that people experienced when they were freed from the oppressive rule of, by foreigners, when they're freed from captivity, or when they'd collected a harvest that was plentiful and abundant. We used to have harvest festivals at the appropriate time of year, celebrating God's provision. And then there's this image of victorious soldiers who, at the, at, who are victorious and after the battle, they divide up the spoils of war. They are victorious. The dawning of this great light, Isaiah says, will usher in a time of peace and injustice. There'll be no more fear of oppression or of a captivity by foreign powers. It's in verse 4. And there will be no more need of weapons of war, which in verse 5, because there's no need for any more weapons of war, they're going to be used as fuel for the fire. They can be burnt up because there's no, no, no more need for them. Now, the amazing thing about all this is that there will be a person who's going to bring all this about. It says a child will be born into the world and he will become a great leader, a person who will lead his people to freedom. This is the divine warrior, the saviour, the messiah, the prince of peace of the house of David, who is yet to come. <coughs> Pardon me. And the phrase in verse 6, the government will be on his shoulders, shows that he will lead the people into this new period of peace and justice. He will exercise a rule of wisdom, righteousness and truth. And the words of verse 6, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, show that he will not only be human, but he will also be God. He will be fully human and fully God. And the four names there express the remarkable nature of this individual and of the nature of his rule, where the government will rest on his shoulders for eternity, where there will be eternal peace and perfect justice. Let's just unpack them and have a look at them a little closer. Wonderful counsellor. This means that he will have the wisdom of God to rule justly. He will possess divine wisdom that is without fault or error. And his judgments will be wonderful indeed. Very much unlike the characteristics of human wisdom, which is full of folly and error. And mighty God, this coming king will display the might and power of God in his person and life. He will have the power of Almighty God who created this universe, this world. He created us. <clears throat> and as the divine warrior, he will accomplish the victory outlined in verses 4 and 5. 
It's any trouble these things. If you cough, you can't get away from them. So this mighty warrior will bring perfect peace. And this peace will not lie just in the absence of war, but it will be experienced as the inner peace of contentment, of security and of love. And he will be the everlasting father, which emphasises his eternity and perpetual loving care for his people. doesn't mean that this Messiah is God the Father. It carries the image of a father who cares deeply about the welfare and well-being of his children. And he will watch over his precious children for eternity, forever. And they need have no fear of any external threats or injustices because he will be, he will be with them, caring for them, protecting them, guarding them. And the Prince of Peace <coughs> means that he will be a ruler characterised by peace. And this peace refers not just to peace, goodwill and harmony between people, but also includes the reconciliation of sinful human beings with their creator God. He will usher in a restored creation where there will be harmony between God and man, between people and between people and the environment. It'll be a new creation. He'll be the Prince of Peace. The peace that we're created to enjoy will return once more. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, it says. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated when he came into the world. You see, Isaiah's vision, Isaiah's dream began to take shape 700 years after these words are written down. And this is, but this is only the beginning because we still live in a world of chaos, corruption, oppression and injustice. So Isaiah's vision will also be our vision of a better future. This vision is meant for us just as much as it, went for, as it was meant for the people of Israel so long ago because it's something that we can look forward to, something we can embrace and bring others into, that we can share it. But note this last sentence. Let's see if I've got that right. The zeal of the Lord of the Almighty, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a key little sentence right at the end of this passage. This kingdom, this action, will be entirely God's work. Because he is the one who took the initiative to send his one and only son, Jesus, into this world. Jesus who came to take the sins of the world upon himself. On the cross. He suffered and died in our place on the cross. And it is God through his Holy Spirit who reaches into the hearts of people and calls them to accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. All this because God is passionately committed to seeing people come into a living personal relationship with him. 
So Isaiah looks into the future. He perceives things happening from that time on and forevermore. It's like someone examining a distant mountain through a telescope. He sees this decisive, world-transforming reign as near. When it is inaugurated, nothing will destroy its influence and nothing will replace it. But remember, only the zeal of the Lord Almighty can accomplish such a great salvation. God's zeal or or jealousy for his people reflects his love, which desires our total and exclusive love for him. It desires that. And he will not rest until everything promised has been established. Seven hundred years down the track from Isaiah, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And Isaiah's prophecy would have resonated with Mary. When the angel tells her that she would conceive and bear a son, and that this son will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary would have no doubt have recognised these words of Isaiah's prophecy. And as the angels uttered those words, those little sort of bells would have rung in her mind, remembering Isaiah's prophecy. And she would have slowly realised that the, the promised Messiah, Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for for 700 years was coming. Now was the time for the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy from long ago. Mary figured it out. But sadly, many of her countrymen failed to recognise their true king who had come to give them lasting freedom and peace. You know, Isaiah's vision of the present and future reign of Jesus give us hope and give us inspiration that we can look beyond the chaos of the world around us to when we will meet our Lord face to face one day when we will submit to his rule over us for eternity. This is our hope. This is a hope that should inspire us, a hope that will sustain us during this time that we're here on earth. It should be our motivation for persevering to stay true to God's way, to obey his commands for us. It may be sacrificial. It may at times be hard. It may be a struggle. But the end, the goal, that dream, that big vision is so worthwhile and so glorious. We need to keep our eyes focused on that. And it's something worth remembering and celebrating in the chaos and busyness of the Christmas period. But it's also a reminder that we should be praying for those who lead us in the meantime, our political and business leaders and for our church leaders, that they would aspire to lead us as the Lord Jesus leads us that they would govern justly and wisely with compassion and genuine concern for those for whom they are responsible. 
This is a great vision. It's a vision of greatness, of wonder. It's obtainable. It will be obtained one day. But let us work hard to see its fruition starting to form up and become a part of us as individuals, as our families, part of this church and the wider community. We long to see that day when Jesus will come and bring new life to every home in the growing southwest. Amen.